Zerubbabel is just an amazing character in Scripture, and his name defies that. Because let's think about it. You know, if you're going to have a good Jewish name, it should end in L, which is God, E-L. But you don't want the word Babel in it, okay? Because this is the basis of the word Babylon. Of course, Babel in the Old Testament was destroyed by God. And so this guy's name somewhat defies his value in Scripture, because you're going to think he's a bad guy. If all I do is give you the name, you're going to want to boo, because you're like, oh, he can't be good with that name. You know what his name means? Born in Babylon. Okay, not the type of name you're really looking for as a good Hebrew. Okay, this man is extremely important, and if I'm going to lay a foundation, say we were at Ellerslie, and I'm training you about the Word of God, one of the most foundational, important principles about truth and about Scripture is that everything in Scripture pertains to Christ. It all is a road sign that is pointing somewhere. The problem is, if you just take the Old Testament, it is pointing at a Messiah. Everything about it, and there's so many layers in the Old Testament that if you don't have the new, if you don't have the revelation of Jesus Christ, then you're missing a key. So it's like having this great treasure chest, and all you can see is the nice, ornate you know, fixings and carvings on the outside of the treasure chest. But without that key, you can't get inside. And it's inside that treasure chest where you find the life. And every Jew longed to look inside that treasure chest to see what the deeper mystery was. As it says in Colossians, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. It was hidden. It literally says that. Paul says that. This was hidden. Hidden from the Jews. They had it the whole time. They were staring right at it, but they couldn't see it. It was a mystery, and it was hidden for ages and generations. But Paul says in Colossians 2, but it has now been revealed to the saints. The problem is most of us don't get it. We don't see it. It's been revealed to us, and we're like staring back going, oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I've known that all my life. I grew up in Sunday school or Sabbath school because I know we have a few that grew up in that. Whatever your rendition, you oftentimes haven't seen it. Right along with the Jews, it says to the Jews that there's a veil that hangs over their eyes. And they can't see Jesus even though he's sitting right in front of them. And so never take it for granted if you have sight in your spiritual life. If you can see Jesus and you can see him clearly and you can see that he is truly the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. If you can see it, cherish that fact. Don't ever take it like it's like, oh yeah, it's just what my parents taught me. It's possible if that's your attitude that you have never seen it. Now I used this back in, I think it was back in early January, I was talking about uh, Reese Howells when he said he was in, in his book, and it's one of my favorite biographies of all time, if not my favorite, Reese Howells' Intercessor. And in that, he is talking about the fact that this man comes up to him and says, I've seen the cross. I've seen it, Reese. I've seen the cross. And Reese Howells grew up a Christian. He's like, what in the world are you talking about? You know, of course, you know, I've seen the cross. Have you seen it, Reese? Have you seen the cross? Because when you see it, it changes you. And I remember even reading this as Reese Howells is describing the process that he went through when he eventually one day saw the cross. He saw it. He could understand it. And suddenly, he was transformed. He saw it, and it, 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 it silenced him. Before the living God, he had to put his hand over his mouth and say, Be quiet, Reese. God is speaking. I'm seeing him. I'm, I, I'm seeing the revelation of God before me as if I'm standing before it 2,000 years ago. 
Do you realize who Jesus is? That he is the fulfillment of it all. And one of the number one things we need to understand is the importance of the word of God. Uh, Here's the message today. Okay, and if I was going to put a name to it, I would call it McLarenism. And it's this. You know, Eric, uh, you know, you're, you're all hot and bothered about the scriptures and all that. But who wrote the scriptures, Eric? Come on, let's be honest about this. Like God. No, who wrote them? Actually, pen to paper, wrote them. You, you're wanting me to say men, aren't you? Uh, Yeah, exactly. It's men that wrote the scriptures. Who wrote it down? Men. Okay, you have have Luke. You have Daniel. You have Isaiah. These are men. These weren't God. Is Isaiah God? Okay, you see where he's going with this? Men wrote it. It's not God. We say that it's God's words. We say that God wrote scripture, that he inspired it. Well, men wrote it, Eric. So let's get into the real world here. This, these are good thoughts. They are godly thoughts. They are grand and moral in their themes. They are epic in their ethic. But they're merely the writings of men that are endorsed by God. He, he favors these words over other words. When you diminish the word of God in text, you diminish the word of God in person. Jesus Christ, one of the most basic tenets of the Christian faith is we believe Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God. You diminish any aspect of that and Christianity starts to unravel. We have to stand on this premise. And when you diminish that fact, you begin to lose the concreteness to what Christianity has been throughout the ages. Now get this. Jesus, being 100% man and 100% God, how in the world does this work? You know why we stand up and defend the virgin birth? Because without it, the entirety of the canonicity of Jesus Christ and his Messiahship falls flat. Any prophet in the Old Testament that was false, that if he was false in even the slightest degree, you know that the Old Testament says that he could be stoned. You know that we could stone Jesus Christ as a prophet if even in the slightest degree he proves false. He had to match the Messiah test to the absolute letter and dot and tittle. These things are critical. Now, follow this. 100% man, 100% God. What is scripture? It's 100% man and 100% God. It's the same miracle. The word of God in text is the word of God in person. And so as we look at this, Zerubbabel, I mean, who in the world cares about Zerubbabel? It's a good question. It's like, you know, leave those things in the Old Testament, Eric. Let's not drudge them up in our modern day. You know, we got plenty of good things in the New Testament. Just divide your Bible down the middle, and we can have a lot more of a pleasant time. Because the Old Testament has a lot of weird stuff in it. It's it's a treasure chest that is unlocked by Jesus Christ, and we have the privilege of opening it up and finding life in the Old Testament of all places. Because it's not the place most of us are thinking to find it. Most of us don't, you know, desire to go to Leviticus, you know, to find life. Yet Leviticus is the basis of what you're called to. It's Christianity. You're a modern Levite. It's the work of a Christian in the temple of God. Do you not know that you're the temple of the living God? These are not ways that we approach Scripture. We don't think that way because the Old Testament is old and we want new. But the Old Testament is what lays the foundation for the New Testament. 
The reason the New Testament is even valid to a believing Christian is because it matched perfectly with the Old. It couldn't contradict it in even one word. Otherwise, we would have thrown out, get this, the New. The New would have been thrown out, not the Old. The new is new, and it's valid to us, and it's canon because it matched perfectly and measured perfectly with the old. Jesus was laid down as a rod, measured against the canon of the Old Testament, and he measured perfectly. And then the apostles received the authority from Jesus Christ, and their voice matched perfectly with Jesus's, who matched perfectly with the Old Testament. So Zerubbabel, what in the world? We have this story in the Old Testament that for most of us would just be a story. I mean, that's, that's another thing that the emergent movement wants to say to us is it, the Bible's narrative. It's just a whole bunch of good stories. They're moral. They're, they're, they have a good ethic, wonderful things, but they're story. There's nothing beyond that. I would completely desire to oppose that opinion and say there is so much value. It says in the New Testament, all Scripture is useful for doctrine. You know what it's talking about when it's talking about all Scripture? The Old Testament. Isn't that a strange little twist on that? Not just the new, but the old is useful for doctrine. How could that be? You know what doctrine would be in a little sort of a, a street version understanding of it? How do you live the Christian life? What's it supposed to look like? How are you supposed to behave? How are you supposed to think about God? The Old Testament is useful for this. To train you in how to live the Christ life today in our modern world. The Old Testament. Okay, so Zerubbabel, the guy that most of us have never heard of until Eric started barking about him and he stuck him in the title of his notes. The hands of Zerubbabel, the guy that's born in Babylon. We don't want to talk about that guy. The guy that was born in Babylon. Jesus came and was born in hostile territory. Enemy territory. You know what Zerubbabel did? Oh, see, I'm about to give too much away here. I'm going to restrain myself and read the first scripture. Then answered the Jews and said unto him. This is, this is Jesus dealing with the Jews. This is a very critical moment in, in history. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, Jesus? I'm adding the Jesus in there. Seeing thou doest these things. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple... And in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty-six years it took us to build this temple, and wilt thou rear it up? I love that statement, rear. Rear it up in three days? Key line, and that's why I emboldened it for you. But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, Jesus, is, it takes quite a bit of audacity to stand up and say, you destroy this temple, and I will rear it up in three days. Isn't that a great statement? Some of you are going to start using that in your normal vernacular. Yeah, you know, I'm going to rear up today. Uh, and so, so, but the temple of which he spoke was his body. He, we're talking about this temple, and the Jews, remember, they don't have the key yet. So they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They can't unlock this great treasure chest. But after he comes back to life, the apostles who now have the key stick it in this quote and suddenly they're like, I see it. I see it. It, it makes sense now. He spoke of his body. Jesus Christ 
is the fulfillment of all of Israel. The entire nation of Israel, the history of Israel, the sacrifices of Israel, the law of Israel is all about Jesus. It's a prophetic culture meant to aim an entire culture to see its end, which is Jesus. The whole thing. It's all about him. Everything that happened, their history, their laws, their sacrifices. Do you see it, people? It's Jesus It all aims to Jesus. Every turn in the road, Jesus. That's Jesus. There he is again. It's Jesus. But you can't see it until you stick Jesus into that treasure chest and open it up. And so you cannot see that this entire Old Testament temple that is built by human hands is a design that is to showcase the perfect measurements of righteousness, the actual behavior of God, that this is where he dwells, that he will come and rebuild a temple on earth, and it will be considered his body, and he will dwell in this body. Right? This is, I might be giving a little too much away, but just trust me here when I say, this is important for where I'm going. That Jesus actually says, you're thinking of the temple that took 46 years to build. I'm talking about this. This is the real temple, the body of Christ. Now, follow this. A lot of us say, well, I'm, I'm the temple of God. That's what Paul says. Jesus is the temple of God. His body is the temple of God. Okay, follow me on this. And you become his body. Okay, that's, that's what the New Testament talks about. You become his body. You enter into covenant with him. You exchange your life, your body and your blood for him. That's what communion is. You take his body and his blood. You become his body. And you give up yours to him. And he can do with it whatever he sees fit. Meanwhile, you become his body. The very dwelling place of God on planet earth. Who is Zerubbabel? Okay, I wrote this out. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Zerubbabel led the first band of Jews, numbering 42,360, exclusive of a large number of servants, who returned from captivity at the close of the 70 years. In the second year after the return, he erected an altar and laid the foundation of the temple on the ruins of that which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. All through the work, he occupied a prominent place inasmuch as he was a descendant of the royal line of David. God promised that there would always be one of David's descendants that would sit upon that throne. And last week we talked about the fact that all sorts of stratagems and conspiracies have been hatched to destroy the line of David. That was, that was one of the sub-themes of last week. So if you remember back, it's like, whoa, they would get down to one guy each generation. The next generation, there was one left. And then in the next generation, only one left. And somehow... They sneak him away in the night as an infant and hide him away. And as he grows up, then he's revealed and he becomes the king of Israel. I mean, this is great stuff. It's, I mean, great. if you could make a movie out of multiple generations, it would be a great movie. It's just movies never turn out very well when they're multiple generation movies, okay? But Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He's born in Babylon. He is the king of Israel. And what is he coming to do? Get this. He is taking his people out of Babylon and where to? To a new Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? Wait a minute. What does that sound like? This is a picture of Jesus. And what does he come to do? What is the first thing he plies his hand to when he arrives? 
It's to build a new temple. This is the work of Jesus, the primary work of Jesus, because he does all sorts of other things. But Jesus came to establish a new temple. I know that sounds strange. It's like that sounds rather limiting. Until you understand what it is. Jesus was going to erect a new temple. And that temple was going to be the dwelling place of God on planet Earth. No longer just this building that is shaped and takes 46 years to build and is built by human hands. But one that is built by God himself. And he would make his bride, his church, his people that temple. And he would reveal to this earth who he is in and through their faith and in through their yieldedness and in through their obedience. Unbelievable plan. Okay, Zerubbabel, I cut out so many scriptures on Zerubbabel. You'd be shocked how many scriptures there are on Zerubbabel. He's just this great character. But what he symbolizes, and here's what I want to lock in place in your mind. He was a king in the line of David, and he was the one who would rebuild the temple. Okay, that's a key distinction for who this man is. At the same time, there was a high priest known as Joshua that returned with him. And so you have a king and a priest, and the priest's name is Joshua, of all things, which means, in the New Testament, Jesus. It's the same name as Jesus. And so we have a high priest named Jesus and a king named Zerubbabel of the line of David. And these two together, a king and a priest, rebuilt the temple. Okay, let's read Haggai. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Okay, now there's a whole bunch of Jews that are returning, but very few actually ever saw the first glory of that temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes of comparison as of, as of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not." The glory of this latter house, get this line, this is a great line. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. There is going to be another temple built. Now, I know that this is, it's going to seem like I'm stretching something. It's like I'm force-fitting something. I'm making Zerubbabel a picture of Jesus Christ. But God himself prophesies about Zerubbabel, and we'll get to that, but uses him as a placeholder for the one who will come and even calls him Zerubbabel. He is a picture of the one to come who will build the latter house, the better house, with a greater glory than any house built by human hands. By my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, this is one of those uh, scriptures, especially if you grew up in a charismatic uh, church. They love uh, to read this scripture. It's a great scripture, by the way, so I don't blame them. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. By the way, Lord of hosts is a Lord of armies. It's the, it's the God, it's the revelation of God that he leads as a general of generals. And so how are we going to win this battle? Not by human might and not by human cunning, not by human power, 
but by the Spirit of God. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. This is a foreshadow of someone, I hope you know, known as Jesus Christ. Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With, whose, with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. It is Zerubbabel that was prophesied to come and to build this house. But a greater house than even the one that Zerubbabel and Joshua were building back then. There was a greater house to come. The Messiah, his very life revealed. God himself coming to this earth and establishing and building with his very own hands the house of the Lord. Beware the saboteurs. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him the, the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right. Now, how does this get down to us? Because it sounds all theoretical and nice, you know, to talk about Jesus being Zerubbabel and he's going to rebuild the temple. What does that matter to us, truly? Unless we understand, Paul over and over and over again keeps reminding us, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Why does that matter? What is so significant about this? You see, first of all, I want you to realize this, that in Psalms, when it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor will labor in vain. And we're all like, that's so true. But you know how many of us attempt to build this temple? We try to construct it after the pattern in the Old Testament. We try and build. But there is only one whose hands can construct this life, and that is the hands of Zerubbabel. There's only one that can do it, and the prophecy is clear. He is the one who will start the work, and he's the one who can finish it. And so Jesus Christ must first start a work within you and must begin the construction, and then you must trust him that he will be the one to finish the work. In the Old Testament, you have the commission to build the temple. And Solomon was the one that built the first temple. And then you have these, these guys. I forgot their names, actually. One starts with a B and one starts with an A, and for some reason I don't have it in my notes. But, you know, they were anointed. It says that they were filled with the Spirit of God to actually furnish the temple. They built all the pieces of the temple. This is Jesus Christ at work 
He doesn't just start and lay foundation stones. He doesn't just build structure in your life. He doesn't just get you to heaven. But he builds the inner furnishings of your soul, of your thought life, everything within you. He's responsible for it. He is the one that is filled with the Spirit of God to do this work. It is him. He is the one that must start it, and he is the one that must do all the furnishings, and he's the one that will complete the work. You are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. These are the works of Christ Jesus. This is an amazing thing to grab a hold of and to realize he's the one that's going to build me. You know how much pressure we have in our lives as Christians to get this thing right? It's really hard to live the Christian life, which is one of the reasons in modern Christianity why we diminish the standard, why we lower it, because we can't do it. And so... Either we uphold the standard, we say, God says, be ye holy as I am holy. And we're like, come on. Be ye perfect as I am perfect. When they strike you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Rejoice when you are persecuted. These things are beyond us. I don't know if you've ever tested them out in your life. And you said, you know what, I'm going to love like Jesus Christ loves. The first day you go out and you get hit on one cheek, suddenly. You're just mad about it. And you're thinking, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not like Jesus? Because you aren't Jesus. Jesus is holy, which means he's other than. He's different than we are. The secret to Christianity is recognizing that he must build the house. He must build it, and you are the body of Christ. You are the temple of God. But that is because you have entered into covenant with him. And you have exchanged your existence for his. You have exchanged your body and your blood. And you said, here they are. My life belongs to you. And he says, well, here's my life. And here's my body. You become my body. And I will give you my blood as life. I will give you. Unless you drink of my, drink of my blood, eat of my body, you can have no part with me. You must literally take on the life of God Almighty. And when you do, that treasure chest opens and the life of God is available to you. Many of us are attempting to live this life through raw grit and determination. And some of you have heard me many times over and over again say, you can't do it that way. It's not going to work. And for some reason, you, you nod along and you say, oh, I know. And then you try it again. Whatever it takes... God has to bring us to what St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul. And dear God, bring us to this place quicker than oftentimes we get there today. Because we have to come to the end of ourselves to find a beginning truly in the might and the power of God. God had to bring me to the end of myself. I have always had high ideals of what the Christian life should be. I have always esteemed the standard of Scripture. I have always looked at the life of God and I said, I want to imitate that. It says to be imitators. Well, I'm going to be an imitator. You know the secret to imitation? Impartation. You must have the impartation of Jesus Christ to imitate him. And the only one who's truly imitating him is Jesus in you. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. What is it? What was it that Paul said? What was that great mystery? Here it is in a nutshell. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the secret. Jesus Christ must have you. He must move in. He can't be an external influence. So many of us as Christians have an external influence, and we call it being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled It's something entering in. 
This is such a crucial thing, and you need to realize, I don't preach like a charismatic. But what I just said were words that you know, cause most people to you know, get all uncomfortable. Filled with the Spirit. It's just a biblical word. I didn't come up with it. But it means to have something enter, something fill. And this is something we must have. If you're the temple of God, if you study the temple of God in the Old Testament, it literally shows the presence of God entering the temple and filling it like a cloud. This must happen in your life. You must be filled as with the cloud of God. You must have fire come upon you. You must have something more than mere human effort, mere human determination, mere human grit and willpower to accomplish Christian living. You must. And I can't press that point enough. Jesus Christ has done it. He came to deliver his people out of this world and to bring them into a new Jerusalem and to establish a foundation and to rebuild a temple. Then after he rebuilt that temple, to surround it with a wall as in the days of Nehemiah, to fortify in and to protect this life within this temple. Jesus Christ must start with first things first. He must establish and rebuild his temple. There is a pattern for how this temple is supposed to be built. And when Ezekiel measured it out, before, remember that? The man of God was measuring out before Ezekiel. It wasn't Ezekiel measuring out with a reed. In, in Ezekiel, I think it was like 41 through 43. It's one of the most dull stretches of Scripture if you don't know what you're reading about. It's like, oh, okay, we're going to hear another measurement. Oh, great, here's another one. Oh, and then we're going to know how far it is from here to here. We're like, well, who cares? It's the heavenly temple that is being measured. It is the perfection of Jesus Christ. And he says, show these measurements to the people of Israel so that they would see their sin. What would measurements reveal any sin in me for? The fact that that's a room 20 cubits wide? I don't feel any conviction. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unless you realize that it was the perfection of a man that was being laid before them. This is the measurements of perfection. Do you measure up to who Jesus Christ is? Is this what your life looks like? If you're representing his name on planet Earth, it better. Well, that's a standard we can't handle. Exactly. You can't handle this standard. But God doesn't lessen it. That's what's amazing. He doesn't mind you squirming under it. And you're like, God, I can't do that. He's like, I know you can't. I can. That's the principle of the gospel. You can't do it. He can do it. So stop trying and yield your life to the one who can do it in and through you. He can take these hands and make them work for him. He can take this mouth and he can teach you to silence it and only speak when he's speaking. He can take this mind and purify it and train you what it means to carry the mind of Christ within you. He can take this heart and burden you with his, his passion for the lost, his compassion for the least. He can do it. He can turn your life into his body. When Jesus Christ is here on earth, what did he do with his hands? What did he do with his eyes? What did he do with his mouth? What did he do with his heart? What did he do with his feet? Because that's your commission. You are his hands and his feet. When we talk about orphans around here a lot, those that hang around us, we talk about orphans a lot. And one of the most common things when you hear about the plight of vulnerable children around the world is you say, I'm so glad God is a father to the fatherless. God, be a father to those children out there. And God looks back and he says, you're my body. You are my expression to them. 
You know that I'm a father of the fatherless, therefore you know that you must be. Because if you're not, I have no representation on earth. You are to be my hands and my feet. You're to be the father of the fatherless for me. If you know his position that he takes for the weak, the least, and the lost, if you know that he is in agony over those that are dying and going to hell, then you take on his burden. You take on his heart. John Hyde literally, John Praying Hyde was his nickname, he literally spent his life for the lost in, in India. He was so burdened. He would literally be in agony, as the historic Christians always called it, travail. Travail of soul. He felt so deeply because he allowed God to enter. And he allowed God to burden his heart. And he said, God, I will do whatever you ask. And God said, pray. Pray for the lost in India. And he would spend weeks on end without food, in agony, weeping, and crying over the lost. And he actually died an early death. He was brought to the doctor. All his friends were concerned about him. And the doctor said, whatever you're doing, you need to stop doing it because it's creating an ex extreme anxiety in your heart. And your heart is literally moved from one side of the chest cavity to the other. And his friends are pleading with him to stop. And John, John Hyde basically said in his own terminology, I'm going out with my boots on. What am I here for but for Jesus? I am gladly willing to bear his burden. Are you willing to be his body? That's the key. We call ourselves the body, but are we willing to be his body? Are we willing to do what is necessary? And what is necessary? Let go of your life. Yield. Let him have what is rightfully his. That's the secret to Christianity. The secret is there is one who can take you out of this world and bring you into a new Jerusalem. There is one that can do it, and if you allow him to lead you, he's a descendant of David, and he's the rightful king of kings, and he will bring you, and he will build a temple, and he will build you into that very temple, and you will become the dwelling place of God, and through your life, he will showcase his glory to the nations. In Zechariah 6, it says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and counsel, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. If you notice, a lot of similarities between the previous scriptures and that one. There's a king and a priest, and he will rebuild the temple, and peace will mark it. You know what peace is in scripture? It's not just a nice, calm feeling. It is the removal of all enemy faction. If there's enemy in the land, there's no peace in the land. But when the enemy is literally booted out and driven out, there's peace. Most of us are living a life with enemy faction in it. It can take on all sorts of forms, but depression, anxiety, fear, lust, whatever it is, it's enemy faction. There's no peace as long as that's the case. But God wants to build you into his body. You know that no profane thing is allowed into the temple of God? No profane thing. You do not mix the profane with the sacred. And so it's driven out. It's kept out. You do not allow these things in. We are to guard our thought life. We are to guard our emotions. These are things we're not even trained in anymore. I don't know if I was saying this to you guys. I've spoken so many times lately. I don't know who I've talked with. But I was talking to a group, I think it was young guys I was talking with, guys in high school, and I was talking about dreams. And I said, for the last 
15 plus years, I've taken my dream life seriously. Most guys are like, what? Dreams? Most of us feel that dreams are our environment. It's like God can have all these other things, but when we're asleep, we can do whatever we want. It's like I can live and abide by these standards out here, but when I go into my subconscious realm, I can do whatever I want. I would like to introduce you to something that will probably make you very uncomfortable. But for the last 15 plus years, I have basically said, God, you guard my subconscious. I don't want anything to enter my subconscious that isn't of your kingdom. Because I know the influence of a dream world. Because I spent years in it, trying to cheat my way through my Christian life, saying, okay, I'm going to be this way, you know, in my awake time. But if, God, you're going to make me live that way when I'm awake, I'm going to live however I want in my dream life. You ever tried to manipulate your dreams? You could do it. You know that you have a will in your dreams? You can make choices in your dreams? You know what I've been doing for years? Before I go to bed, God, guard my, my, my dream life. I pray this for my kids. Our dreams and our family are extremely important. I take it very seriously. No inlet point. This is the temple of God. We're not mixing anything profane. Have you ever woken up from a night and you're just sort of, sort of slimed with your dream world? Well, what if you knew that you didn't have to have a slime from your dream world, but a blessing from your dream world? What if you were will, able to wake up every day after practicing kingdom work all night long? You know that I raised a guy from the dead a few months ago? <laughs> I did. You know, I like praying during the day. I was like, God, I mean, I don't know if I have the faith for this. If some guy just fell over dead, you know, would I be like, up, rise up in the name of Jesus? I don't, know, don't do it to me right now, okay? God's still training me. But in my dream world, these guys, this guy fell over dead, and everyone's like, he's dead, he's dead. And I said, in the name of Jesus, rise. And the guy literally popped back up, and I was so shocked. In my dream, I was shocked. It was. So in other words, my dream life is my practice ground. It's like before I enter it and I see it in this natural realm, God seems to introduce it to me in my dreams. I have preached some of the fieriest sermons in front of the most uh, harsh audiences in my dreams. I've been completely rejected where every single person in an audience left when I was preaching. And I still stood, and I preached it anyways. <laughs> Your dreams are an opportunity. In other words, this is just one example. In other words, no profane thing enters. If you take it seriously, every thought that comes in, what do you do with it? You don't process. If it's not of God, you don't process. The fact that there's a thought, you may not have any control over that. The fact that you drive by and you see a billboard, you might not have any control of the fact that there's a billboard there. You can get mad at that and go, hey, I didn't build the billboard. I can't help it. Now that I saw it, I have to work it over in my mind. No, you don't. You have a choice in every moment of who you're yielding to. And when you see something, that thought may come, but you immediately bounce off and you say, no. No. This is serious business, Christianity. We're in the midst of hostile territory. This is a war over your soul. This is a war over the glory of God. Jesus Christ has done it. He has established a temple. He has given you a key to unlock the life of God. And you can have it. This is something all the Jews long to look into. And you can see it. And oftentimes it's staring right in front of us. The, the crucifixion scene is right there to be seen. The life and part of the resurrected Christ is there to be seen. The ascended Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father is there to be seen. And we don't see it. We've just been trained in this all our life. We know it's true. We believe it. Yeah, yeah. But we've never seen it. 
Because when you see it, it changes you. And you understand what it means. To, to be the temple of God doesn't mean you don't eat Twinkies. That doesn't mean you don't you know, use drugs. It doesn't mean you don't smoke. That's, that's the, the, what we, most of us have been raised with. The reason we don't smoke and the reason we don't cuss is because we're the temple of the living God. It doesn't mean you go out and take drugs and smoke because, hey, did you hear what Eric said? You live to represent Jesus. You, so it's not that those things aren't true, but there is something so much deeper. You are literally being constructed to house the presence of God. That's what the temple is. It's the dwelling place of God Almighty. Have you ever thought of God actually living inside of you? Not just the influence of God, not just the concept of God, the idea of God being inside of you where you meditate upon it. The very real presence of God, the way he consumed that bush before Moses, in the same way he consumes you. He's a consuming fire. He overtakes your life, and suddenly you become a burning bush in this world. Where this world comes near you, and they literally feel they need to bend their knee and remove their shoes because there's something alive within you. That is Christianity. And if you have not grasped that yet, go after it. Don't fear it. I know it sounds rather terrifying. I just called it a consuming fire. The amazing thing about the burning bush is it's a picture of Christianity. It's a bush. It's worthless. It has no value. Moses probably never noticed this bush before. Now suddenly, something's different. There's a fire of God within it. Now when a fire overtakes a bush, what happens to the bush? It's destroyed. It burns up. It's, I mean, it turns to ash. The consuming fire of God, when it moves upon God's people, doesn't consume them. Ironically, if you don't yield to God now and become a burning bush in this world to proclaim and herald his message, you know what happens? That same consuming fire will turn you to ash in the end. You have a choice of how you're going to deal with the fire of God. Either you let the fire in, let it be housed within you, or it literally turns you to ash in the end. And that's judgment, known as hell fire. We have the privilege of housing the living God. This is no small thing. This is the greatest news ever in the history of the world that God would take us measly humans and he would say, I want to make you my home. Our Zerubbabel has done it. Know ye not that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You ever heard of demon possession? Not a good thing. If, if the demon controls a man and someone's demon possessed, who's doing the talking? Who's doing the actions? It's the demon. Now, that's a little weird for us because most of us don't like to talk about demon possession. But we, just reading scripture, you know that to be true. If a demon is controlling a man, if he's possessing a man, then the man is behaving like the demon. He's showing forth the behavior, the words of the demon. I want you to realize that Christianity, even though this is going to sound weird at first, is God possession. Demon possession is merely a counterfeit of the real thing which is God possessing his people. What does it mean to possess? It means to own. Did you just hear that scripture? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
God with an apostrophe S, which means possessive. God's possession. You belong to God. You are not your own. It says apart from him you can do nothing unless you abide in him. When you are a branch and you abide in a vine, that means you are grafted in and there's a sap that fills that, that vine. And that's what provides life. That's what is causing the fruit to be born. It's life within that vine. When you are grafted in, the reason you must be grafted in is then that sap will enter you. Enter you. It will actually come inside of you. And what is the result of this? You will bear much fruit. But apart from him, you can bear no fruit. You're good for nothing but to be thrown in the trash pile. That's it. There's no value to a branch. Could you imagine a branch just sort of sitting on the side of the road and you're walking by? Not many of us are going to look over and go, nice branch. See, branches that aren't connected and have no life in them are worthless. And every single one of us would know that. What are they good for? The burn pile. That's it. But a branch has life when it's grafted in to the source of life. And then that life, that sap, actually enters into that branch. And yes, in the very beginning stages of that branch's life, its fruit is pretty small because it's a new branch and it's newly grafted in. And you're not bearing fantastic fruit at first, but you have, you have life. You have green you're, you're, you're tender now. You're no longer brittle. There's a tenderness to you. There's a greenness to you. There's, there's a flowering that's taking place. And fruit is coming. It's not that impressive yet. But just wait. You stay abiding in that branch. And guess what? Suddenly, you're bearing fruit. And you're bearing fruit ten times over, a hundred times over. You are producing for that vine. You have given up your own identity. When you were a branch just sitting on the side of the road, you were your own branch. You were your own person. You know, you could do it any way you wanted. Yeah, you were useless, and you were only good for the burn pile, but hey, it was your life. You could do whatever you wanted with it. Try. Being a branch is sort of sitting on the side of the road and bearing fruit. You ever tried that? Ugh, trying to get some fruit out of your arm. Ugh. Nothing comes out because you have no life within you. Here's the key. To enter into that vine, you must give up your individual identity. You must give up life as you now know it. Because to be grafted into that vine means you're no longer noticed as an, as an individual. You're noticed as the vine. When people walk up to the vine, they don't pick out one branch and go, oh, you see that branch over there? That is a really nice branch. The branch is lost in the overall vine. You're going to be lost in the body of Christ. It's about him. It's no longer about you. I know that is threatening to who you are as a person because you have dreams and ambitions and maybe you have, you, you've always wanted to vie for that central position where people could know your name and they could appreciate you. And yes, Christianity does threaten that. But I want you to realize that desire within you is threatening your eternal existence. And I'm not over-exaggerating that. To be a Christian and to keep self on the throne and to make this life about you destroys you. The secret to Christianity is letting go of you. You giving up your life and allowing Jesus Christ to move in and take his rightful position. One more scripture. For ye are the temple of the living God... As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will walk in them. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? Jesus said that he did nothing but what the Father was doing. He didn't speak anything but what the Father was speaking. He didn't do anything but what the Father was doing. That is an amazing statement. He was God. If anyone could have lived his own life in his own rendition of life, it was Jesus. And Jesus himself 
yielded and depended upon something greater than him as an example to you. And he says, this is the way it works. He said, this is the template for how a temple is to operate. You yield. It is no longer your life. It is my life. Every word you speak, if you could get this in you, could transform the example of Christianity in our generation. But every word you speak is not supposed to be your own. It's supposed to be Christ's. That means if you don't have anything of Christ to say, you put your hand over your mouth. There's nothing valuable that you can input into this world. Be quiet. But if Jesus wants to say something, then you say, absolutely. You take this mouth and you speak your message. You don't look at anything that Jesus isn't looking at. You don't do anything that Jesus isn't doing. I know that sounds restrictive, but the life of God is anything but restrictive. It's liberating. Because now you don't need to say, what am I supposed to do with my life? You don't need to worry about how this life is going to unfold. It's his business. You seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these issues of life will be taken care of. Every single one of them that you would otherwise stress about and be anxious about will be added unto you. He'll deal with your life. Why? Because it's his life. He will protect your life. He will run your life. He will direct your life. Now, personal testimony. About eight, ten years, oh boy, I don't even know what the year amount is, but God brought me to my end. I've always thought these things. Everything I'm teaching you, I knew in my head, but I hadn't come to the dark night of my soul yet where I realized, Eric, you literally can't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I had all the right thinking. I had all the right living. I had all sorts of barricades in my life to prevent me from sinning, but I still had the impetus in every day to go after the wrong things. So frustrating. So sick and tired of myself. And God was bringing me to that end, and I said, either Christianity works or it doesn't. What it says in the New Testament is triumph, but I don't have triumph. I think about triumph, but I don't possess triumph. There is nothing in me that is enabling me to live this life. And then when I hit the darkest hour of my life, God intervened. He said, Eric, I can do it. But you must let go at a whole nother level. You must let me have access to your life. There's keys to your life. It's like this house belongs to you. You have some keys. You're like, this is, well, this, is, this is my house. What's it called? It's called Eric Ludi. You know, it's not called Jesus Christ. This is my house. And Jesus says, you know those keys? I need in. We'll still call it Eric Ludi. But it needs to be run and operated by me. Have you ever considered giving up the keys to your house and realizing that you can't take anything back that you give to God? It's different than fasting. When you fast, you give up food, but you get it back. When you surrender, you give it up, and you don't have the right to take it back. So when you give up your life to Jesus Christ, he gets the keys, and he moves in, and he walks into the hallway, and he can do whatever he wants in that hallway. He goes into all the rooms, and he can do whatever he wants. If he wants to remodel, if he wants to chop one down, if he wants to do whatever he wants, this is his life. I can tell you what, I love my life. And I love my life with Jesus at the helm. I have never once regretted the fact that I relinquished control to Jesus Christ and I gave him those keys. My life is abundant. It is full of joy. It is full of peace. It is full of everything that is good. 
Yes, my life is tremendously challenging too because of it. You give Jesus Christ the helm and guess what? Beware the saboteurs because they will immediately come after you to try and defeat what God is beginning. You have an enemy and the enemy despises and hates the construction of a God-built temple. There is nothing more damaging to his kingdom, uh, the kingdom of darkness, than the work of Zerubbabel. The hands of Zerubbabel are reaching out and they want to access your life. And they will start a work, they will furnish a work, and they will complete a work. But you must let him have his rightful place. As we progress sort of to the starting line uh, with Ellerslie uh, this next week, this is a significant week in our life. And I just, I'd like to pray uh, just as we finish for the foundation to be laid and laid right. This, I, I have a very clear sense of my inability tonight, for whatever reason. Okay, maybe it's that I traveled all day long. Maybe it's that I don't have much of a voice left. Maybe that my mind isn't completely clear. But I feel very small. I cherish that feeling. Anytime Eric thinks he's big, you guys need to let Eric just be by himself, okay? Don't listen to Eric. If he's thinking he's big, then Eric's the problem. Eric always needs to remain small, and so do you. We need to decrease so that Jesus would be seen. And tonight, for whatever reason, I feel very small. I feel, feel very unable. I feel ill-equipped for the task at hand. And I cherish that. It's like I just sort of appreciate that. It's like, thank you, God. Because I'm, I've been praying for 17 years for what is about to launch this next week. 17 years. I've been praying for something very specific for 17 years, and now it's happening. And suddenly, right as I'm coming up to it, it's like, I can't do this. And God freshly reminds me, <clears throat> Eric, I can. That's the message of our life as Christians. So if you're feeling very small and you want to join in the chorus with Eric Ludi tonight, and go, I just don't, I don't know that I can live this God. And he's like, hey, shh, hand over mouth. I can. I can. And it's a wonderful thing when you feel small. Because in that weakness, in that fragile state where you don't, you have a clear sense that you can't. You are ill-equipped for the mighty calling of God upon your life. That is when you can have a deep understanding of that cross. That it, it is because you are ill-equipped that he died. It is because you are ill-equipped that he rose from the dead. It is because you are ill-equipped that he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. It is because you are ill-equipped that he sent forth his spirit to fill you and to make you his temple on earth. He has not left you alone. His spirit remains and it remains here on earth to finish the work that his hands began. The work that he began, he is faithful to complete. Take that personally. He has started something in you, and he is faithful to complete it. All your job is, is to yield. All your job is, is to abide. You don't get much credit for that. But that's our work. You yield your life to him and let the living sap of God fill you. And you will find life abundant. And yes, he will get all the credit. It's the way it should be.